Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for its ongoing uh, life and relevance to us. We ask that You would open us to receive it and to, uh, that it would examine our hearts and that we would respond to Your grace and faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Holy moly, there is so much uh, to cover. Uh, in these chapters, so these are only. This is only uh, chapter 22 and 23 of the E100. Um, and if we get to chapter 23, then that'll be a miracle. Chapter 22 is Exodus 32 to 34, and there is so much uh, in there that I um, that I that I want to cover. So, um, and actually, there's one thing that I want to cover that is, uh, I think is important that is not in there, that is sort of between where we left off last week and where we are headed. So, um, so if you will permit me, but remember we are walking through the Old Testament uh, to see it as Christian Scripture. Uh, that is to say, we're not uh, looking for Jesus under every rock. We're not saying that it says Moses, but it's really Jesus or um, you know something like that. What we're looking for is how the narrative of each story, of each passage, uh, how the narrative points us ahead to Jesus. Right? Maybe we're talking about the character and the nature of God. Maybe we're talking about the law. Maybe we're talking about a particular person uh, and how God works in and through that person. Um, but it's all about how the narrative points us ahead uh, to Christ in some way. For instance, if we're talking about creation and fall, we are created in God's image, and yet we can see very clearly from Genesis chapter 3, and uh, it reflected in our own life, that we are ourselves fallen. Um, we see that's the, the message of, of creation and fall, and that's uh, and so what do we, what, what's the solution to our fallenness? Well, we need Christ. We need an intermediary. We, look at, we looked at Joseph, um, the son of Jacob. Uh, and we see God's suffering servant uh, sent to rescue God's chosen people. That sounds pretty familiar, right? So Jesus is like the perfect Joseph, the, the, the new Joseph, um, in a sense. We looked at Pharaoh, and we see that God will not take second in a power struggle. Even in God's nature such that He will defeat His enemies, and of course even uh, His greatest enemy, which is sin and death itself, which He does in Christ. Last week we looked at the Ten Commandments. The law describes uh, the holiness of God, and therefore it exposes our unholiness, right? Uh, The law cannot create the thing in us that it demands of us. In fact, we saw that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount takes the Ten Commandments and rants to the highest possible level just to prove the point. Um, and it has, the law has us calling out for someone to take our place, for a Savior. And of course, uh, Jesus has done that. So God hasn't changed His holiness, uh, but He has given us our Savior. So we want to see the Old Testament as Christian Scripture. Is that, I hope that's coming through clearly uh, in these lessons that as we walk through week by week. Um, now, I'm not, I don't want to say in the sense that I don't want to be offensive to our Jewish friends to say that it's ours and not theirs uh, in any means. I simply want to say it's pointing to, the, to Messiah. And we understand that Messiah has come. That that's what I mean. We're learning not just, not just what to see in each passage, but how 
I want you, I hope you're learning how to view um, the Old Testament scriptures so that you can feel confident in reading it yourself devotionally. There's so much there. So the Old Testament uh, is Christian scripture. Well, last week, we, as we said, we saw the Ten Commandments. And what you may not know, I mean, the Ten Commandments, they get a lot of airtime. But Moses doesn't leave the mountain. There's tons and tons and tons and tons of laws that come after this over the next the series of the next 12 chapters, right? Laws uh, about how you treat outsiders, whether they be slaves or foreigners or travelers. Extensive laws about worship. Um, about the construction of the tabernacle, uh, which is sort of mobile worship. Everywhere they went, they carried the tent around and they'd set it up in in, uh, different ways, but lots and lots of uh, very specific instruction about worship, about the ordination of priests, about the various sacrifices. Um, And so I just, before we talk about the golden calf, I do just want to talk about those laws. And not about the laws specifically, but I often uh, have heard many, many times something to the effect of if we took the Bible literally, then we couldn't wear cotton polyester blends and we wouldn't eat shrimp. Right? I've, I've heard because the Levitical laws say that. And we're not going to talk about, in the E100 about the book of Leviticus. We actually skipped over that uh, this week. And... Um, and <laughs> And numbers and Deuteronomy. So, um, the um, <laughs> thanks be to God in some sense. Um, but it's important to understand about that because uh, you know we the the conclusion then is since we don't take all the laws literally, then we don't have to take other laws literally that seem outdated. Now I have uh, usually heard that comment in uh, relation to something about human sexuality. Whether it be talking about um, a pr- a premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual uh, relationships, whatever it is, we can't can't follow every law of the Bible to the T. If we did, we wouldn't be able to eat shrimp or wear cotton poly blends. I hear that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of that. And so, that it's an important distinction. I want to uh, I want to help you understand at least where I fall down on it. Um, and about how to understand those laws. So, um, all of the laws relate in some way back to one of the Ten Commandments, or at least in some way back to some character or uh, characteristic or na- natural aspect of God's uh, of who God is. Some some aspect of God's character and nature. Uh, and so, I want to just give a few examples of that. And I don't really have any particular picked out. I'm going to just going to go back to Genesis about 20. I mean, uh, Exodus about 22, and see with what I've got. See what I've got here. Um, Exodus 22:18. And there's a lot of crazy laws right around here. Um, let's see if that's the one I want to use. I want to use 18, but I don't want to use 19. But you can, um, you can, you can take a look at that. Um, uh, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Now that sounds like, does that contradicting? You shall not murder. Well, no, because the sorceress. Now again, you don't get to, you, you don't get. If you find a sorceress walking down the road, you don't get to kill her. That's that's not what it's saying. So you say, well, I can't take that literally, right? Well, that's. Um, we don't live in a religious society like they did. 
where the law, the scriptural laws are, are that. But um, the sorcerers would have violated the first commandment. Right? You shall have no gods before me. And so it is a um, among the people, among the Hebrews. It's not saying you need to go out. I don't think it's saying you need to go out to Philistia and seek out all their sorceresses. It's just saying within the, people, the Hebrew people, uh, we are a God-fearing people, and if someone who veers from that, we're not going to uh, allow that in our midst. Um, why is that? Because God is one. That's, that's ne- part of His nature. So His people aren't going to worship multiple gods. Well, they, and you will see that they will in history, uh, but that, and that's part of the, the problem. Let me, uh, let me see um, about... Let's see... If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution uh, from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. What does that relate to? Anybody? Coveting. Coveting? In what way? I don't disagree, but tell me, why would you make that conclusion? You, you give up your best to show that you're loving your neighbor, but you're also not trying to keep for yourself mm-hmm. something that is valuable, something you own destroyed. Right. In other words, you would covet your own animals over and above God. Right, and so you would, um, and, and I think also, um, thou shalt not steal, right? So it's, um, if, you're, if your ox breaks out of your fence and goes and eats uh, the crop of your neighbor, then you're going to make restitution from the best of yours, so you're not giving him your bad crops uh, to make up for it, you're giving him the best of your crops. And so yeah, I think it's, you're not coveting your own stuff, you're not um, holding on, you're, you're putting the relationship first, you're not stealing. So so all these, it actually is, is worth some thought if you are find yourself in a Bible reading plan and you're going through these laws to give some thought, not just to getting through them as fast as you possibly can, uh, but to think about why would God make this a law? Why would God make this a law? That's a, that's a good devotional uh, practice. So all the laws relate in some way back to one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but the full revelation of who God is has not been given in the law. The full revelation of who God is has been given how? In Jesus Christ. Right. So, laws that require people to make sacrifice no longer remain. Because why? Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, right? He's the final sacrifice. Laws that require death for sin. Jesus has already died for sin. And we don't need to do that again. Laws that require a certain behavior as a demonstration of, their, of the people's uniqueness as the children of God. For instance, no blended material because God is one. Um, kosher eating, demonstrating uh, obedience to God. Laws that require some certain behavior as a demonstration of their uniqueness as the people of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. 
We are united to Christ and therefore united to the Father in Him. So in Him we are completely unique and we have been set apart as He is set apart. And so, because we are in Christ, we can wear cotton poly blends. <laughs> I know that sounds strange, but the reason they have that, that law, or laws that seem so bizarre to us, is because uh, they, there's another way to reflect that they were set apart as um, a God who is not blended with other gods, in a sense. Kosher eating is just a way of setting themselves apart. So, I would say the Old Testament laws, they're not to be discarded wholesale by any means, but they were given as a way to be right with God, to be righteous with God. But in Christ, Jesus made us right with God. And so we don't need the law in that way anymore. The law no longer serves that prescriptive function. Prescription meaning if you do this, then God will grant you His favor. If you take your medicine, your prescription then you will get better. We don't need that um, anymore. So, but we do certainly have New Testament laws, right? New Testament imperatives. They are given as the description, not a prescription, but as a description for a life lived in response to God's grace. So because I've heard this, um, uh, this argument, we don't have to take it literally, Uh, so so many times around sexuality. Let me turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, which says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So, why is that? It's a New Testament law. Marriage is the relationship that honors God and creation. So I'll teach you. I'm talking about marriage, but we're also talking about the sort of law as, as, as concept as well. Marriage is a relationship that honors God and creation, male and female. He created them. So it goes back again to the nature of God. Um, marriage, we see in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that, um, and, and other places as well, that marriage is the relationship that reflects the relationship between Christ and His church. So there is a sense in which marriage is to be held in honor because it's the relationship that witnesses to the faithfulness of God given in Christ. So God is faithful. He's committed to us. And therefore, we are to respond to His grace by being faithful in the commitments we make. Therefore, let the marriage bed be undefiled, which is to say sex is for the union of man and woman in marriage because it... it, connotes intimacy. And it says that God will judge. Regardless of where where we excel or fall short, none of us gets out unscathed. Right? There's not someone here who doesn't have in some way some sort of broken, relational, sexual, some sort of brokenness. Me included. And all of us, the law does what it always does and drives us back to our Savior. So let's say you find yourself under the, the um, condemnation of a, a New Testament law that says, for instance, uh, if you marry uh, someone who is divorced, or if you're divorced and you marry someone, then you're committing adultery. Well, you need a Savior. I'm not saying you shouldn't take that into consideration, but it's just the situation you find yourself in. I have, a lot, I have friends who 
came to Christ in their third marriage. Like that, what do you do with that? I came to, I came given my life over to Christ. And what, what do you do with it? Is you say, Lord, have mercy. I mean, that's, that's what you do with it. And so we don't say, hey, if I followed everything the Bible commands, none of us could be eating shrimp. That's, that's, not the, that's not the right response. We take the imperative seriously and we trust God's grace in all things. I'm not sure if you feel like that. I, I don't know if you feel like that is a cohesive answer. That's, that's where I follow it. We want to take them seriously. But we want to see thoughtfully and prayerfully. And we may not, like you may not land on something in the place that I land. And that's okay. We want to be taking these things seriously and, and faithfully before God, not just dismissing them. That makes sense? Is that helpful? Or am I just kind of Charlie Brown's teacher? <laughs> not helpful? No. Why not? Well, because there are other things, like um, there is no Jew or Greek, as Paul says, under Christ. Um, and love is of utmost importance in the New Testament. Uh-huh. And as far as a homosexual bond, um, we do know a lot more now about genetics and genetic problems. Mm-hmm. And it's just that I don't think there's a black and white. I think our best thing to do is to love love sincerely and through grace, Christ can convey um, His truth mm-hmm. what He meant by all of the things He said. Well, God always takes... God always takes um, broken people and makes grace right. out of it. Um, and and so what I'm saying is that we don't just discard the imperatives. Right. That, the, that that's, um, but neither are they salvific. We're not, we're not saved by obeying. We're saved by grace. Right. And, and so we, we don't just say that doesn't apply and move on. We want to take them seriously. Um, I think that when someone comes to me, I mean, well, I'm not thinking, when someone comes to me for a second or third marriage, like we're going to talk about the scriptures. I mean, that, that say that divorce is not optimal. We're going to ask God for his grace and his forgiveness of our part in that. And we're going to move forward in faith. So we're not, we're not just setting them aside because everybody gets divorced. I mean, like, we're not... They, we're still taking this scripture really seriously, but we're just understanding the law's role. The other reason I was divorced mm-hmm. was because my priest, in counseling me, explained marriage covenant, and he was led to say, I had a covenant with God, and I thought I had one with my first husband, mm. but he didn't live up to a covenant. He didn't keep the covenant with God or me. Well, I, so, you know, not to, and God didn't want my children to suffer because of that. Well, I don't disagree with that. And I think you that know, each, it, you know. It helped me feel at peace about it. Well, I, absolutely. And I'm so, and I would say, thank God that you, you, mm-hmm. you know, found peace. And, and I know that your story is not unique even within this room. Um, but I, what I'm trying to convey is that grace is the thing that saves. But as, as a response, we do want to know how we, our lives honor God. And we don't just get to say, we don't 
apply the, the law. The Old Testament law served its function. The New Testament law serves its function. Those are different functions. And so we want to do our very best to honor God by His grace. Now it sounds like there's more to it, and I'm probably not giving it a full enough treatment that, that we can, uh, that, that, it, that it needs. And we might want to talk more about those, those things. Because we do want to go on and get to the, um, the golden calf. But what I just want to say is that we take um, the impar- we want to take the imperatives into consideration as those who have been saved by grace. So that's, that's what I want to say about that. I wasn't trying to make a comment uh, or give my own opinion on homosexuality or anything like that. I want to say that it's not faithful for us to just say, oh, that doesn't apply anymore. That, that's what I want to say. All right, so speaking of taking imperatives seriously, um, the golden calf is uh, in Exodus 32. And get, looking at our time, it's probably the, the thing we're going to talk about the most this morning. Um, we're going to learn about the nature of sin. And actually, I wanted to talk about the nature of sin, human nature, and the nature of prayer. But I, I really, as I was looking at it, I couldn't really distinguish enough between the nature of sin and human nature uh, in this. Which sounds maybe a little bit judgmental. Um, it wouldn't be the first time. Um, but the, um, that was a joke. Um, all right. Good, thank you. So the nature of sin, as it, uh, as it is displayed within human nature... And uh, the nature of prayer. Really interesting passage. So, uh, verses 1 through 6, uh, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Incidentally, that can be translated molten calf or cast iron calf as well. But golden is how it's always been understood uh, by us made a golden calf, and they said, These are your gods. That's unbelievable to me. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And in my Bible, that's, that's the, uh, you know, it's all capitalized, the word Lord, which means that's the word for Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Isn't that a strange way to, to talk about it? They just they were just it jubilee, you know. Just it was it was a festival. They were playing to indulge. Well, that that is um, that is very strong. Now, so. Remember, I said there's a lot of laws. And it must have taken a lot of time for Moses to get all those laws. And he's up there on the mountain. And the people, I mean, he, these are the people who, so let's just say it was a month ago. 
right? A month ago, they saw the terrible thunder, the lightning over Mount Sinai. They heard the commandments, have no gods before me. They knew that if they went up on the mountain, if they touched the mountain, if their goat ran up on the mountain, they were going to get killed because they were going to be in the presence of God. And unbelievably, they say to Aaron, up, make us other gods who will go before us. Now, there's something to be said, I think, about the instinct that says that we need something greater than ourselves. We can't just be doing this all on our own. But obvious misplacement. We don't know what's happened to this, this, this Moses. You know, it's just such a... a um, the way the text comes across is this, this incredibly um, disconnected. And... More unbelievably to me is that Aaron, Moses' brother, says, All right, <laughs> give me your gold. And he puts in the fire and he it says, With a graving tool, he makes them a golden calf. And now I'm not defending what they did, but I do wonder if there are times where we, we can relate to, we, there's times in our lives where we wonder where God has gone. Uh, we wonder if um, God is coming back. And there might be this uh, longing in some way to have a God who's a little more manageable, a little more predictable, a little more tangible. There may be times when you think, what has happened to the leader that God has appointed for us? <laughs> we don't know. And I hope that you know, but um, it is hard to imagine for me what Aaron was thinking and feeling. Because there, in the text, there is no real conflict. It doesn't say that Aaron said, let me go pray about this. Or Aaron was tied up in knots and couldn't eat anything all day for worrying about it. It doesn't say anything like that. He said, sure, give me your gold. It is bizarre to me. In spiritual leadership, there can be a real tension between what the people want and what you feel like the people need. I have felt that tension, probably not in this way, but I have felt that uh, tension. And my guess is that Aaron felt caught in that tension. And that he didn't, didn't in his own mind, think he, he was in creating an entirely new God, although that seems to be what the people are saying. It said, they said, not Aaron said, but they said, behold, your gods who have brought you up out of Egypt. And... Aaron builds an, an altar, and he says, oh, will, will tomorrow be a festival to Yahweh, to, to the Lord? But the people have asked for a God they can follow, right? And God, Aaron gives them this God, or maybe gods is plural, behold your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. I think Aaron is trying to walk a fine line. I think Aaron is trying to give them what they want without being unfaithful, but he just blows it all. I think he just, he just messes it up. They didn't worship rightly. Um, the people have departed easily. They have determined for themselves what they will worship. And that is, that is human nature. That is the essence of sin. But apart from the one who called them out from outside of themselves to be uh, His people, uh, they are sitting in the place of God. They are determining for themselves who God is, and that is the nature of sin. 
when you have a God other than God, when you covet, when you um, murder someone in your heart, when you dishonor your parents, when you, um, whatever it is, you're saying, I know better than God. That's what Eve did. Eve said, I know better than God what, what is good for me, or at least what I, I know what I want, and I think I'm going to circumvent what God has said. So, that's the nature of sin, and God is offended. Now, not like you and me, when somebody says something ugly to you and you get offended. We get our feelings hurt, right? I don't think that's what we mean when we say that God is offended. He has been transgressed, right? Like when we pray in the um, right one confession, we have offended against thy holy laws. We have transgressed them. God has been, um, he's not addicted to indignation like we are in our society. We are, as a society, addicted to indignation. He's not just like, what? You did what? He's just like, how can you, how can you, how could you do that to me? He is holy and they have transgressed. That is, that is the offense. God sees their sin from afar. That's really important as well. He, he was up on the mountain with Moses, but he knows what's going on in the camp. He's always with you. He is omnipotent, om, omnipresent. Um, and he calls them a stiff-necked people. What do you make of that description? These are a stiff-necked people. It doesn't mean they just had a bad night's sleep, right? You've been stiff-necked before. Stubborn. One track mind, right? That we must think is what we call it. They just—I think that's right. No flexibility uh, in their thinking. And he reveals to Moses that he is going to consume them, and he's going to make a great nation out of Moses. Now, rather than accepting his own new heritage, Moses intercedes. I think that is remarkable. I think that is remarkable. Moses steps between God and God's people, and in this case, between God and the object of God's wrath, and he functions as a mediator, which is what the people who have sinned always need. Right? Again, this is Christian Scripture. It points us ahead. Uh, we need a mediator. So let me read this intercession, verses 11 through 14. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will inherit, that I will give to your offspring that they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. Yes, Susie. So does that mean that he changed his mind? Mm. That was what I was going to ask you. Just shows his flexibility. So, does that mean that God changed his mind? Moses appeals to the witness of God among the nations, especially the Egyptians. He appeals to the promises of God. 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeals to the nature of God as one who keeps His promises, and the Lord relented. In fact, the King James says, the Lord repented. Not turned, um, not confessed His sin, but turned away from the evil. That's the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. God seems to change change course, doesn't He? Seems to change His mind. Which He can do. Because God can do whatever He wants to do. God can do whatever He wants to do, but God is unchanging. God is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. His plan will be accomplished. His plan will be accomplished. But what if His plan was to wipe out the people? And Moses said, please don't. He said, okay. So Paul is appealing to the sovereignty of God that he already knew what he was going to do. He's putting Moses to the test, maybe. Mm-hmm. Omniscient is omniscient. Yeah. yeah. Omniscient is omniscient. I don't think you can use the, def- the word in the definition, but... Um, and it didn't just end with, 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 the, with this crew that Moses had either. I mean, that's the way it went And don't you think it was a test for Aaron, too? A test for Aaron? Yeah, well, I, I do. Yeah, he stunk it up. And then he said, they made me do it, which sounds like he... <laughs> One of the great lines of Scripture that Aaron says. Um, so, so before we get there, let's, I, actually, I think, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on this chapter for, for next time. I want to I wanna keep going. I want to work my way into chapter uh, 33 and 34. But um, God seems to change course, maybe even change his mind. Prayer is not an equal partnership, but it's a partnership. We are, and I don't mean to suggest that I really understand how prayer works, but there is an appeal from us to God's power. God holds all the cards, but there is a sense in which He does what Moses wants rather than what He wants, or He averts the consequence of what He would have done. We're going to see this again in chapter 33. And again, I'm going to stick with this chapter uh, in the E100. Is that the mercy that he is displaying without consequence? Well, there are consequences. But at this moment, he is saying, I will not. Uh, is that the... Well, I think, I think it is merciful. The, it is mercy, but it's unadulterated mercy at that time. That is, unadulterated mercy at that time, yes. Unqualified mercy right. at that time. It is. So that's, again, the nature of God. His, na- His property is always to have mercy. And, and yet, it, I mean, I'm not sitting here saying it's, it's easy to figure it out and all you got to do is try a little harder. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. And you can imagine theologians have been wrestling with it for a long, long time. But we see here that prayer does, that God operates according to prayer. That He avails himself to his people. So God is unchanging, and yet that is one of the most amazing things about um, uh, about Jesus, is that God act, he becomes human. He, uh, so there's a change. He uh, grows. Uh, he, become, he 
figures out along the way sort of who he is, and he dies. And there's a separation between the, the Son. and There's a change. Jesus intercedes to the Father and asks Him to, to move. And, and there's this sense in which there's a, again, it's not an equal partnership, but it's a partnership. And that God is effected. Um, again, not, with, not to the expense of His sovereignty uh, or His omniscience, but that God, prayer does work. And I wish I could articulate it in a, in a more articulate way, but I, it's, it's very hard because we don't really know how prayer works. We just know that it works. And there aren't consequences, even in this situation. Well, very... Yes, and grisly consequences. Um, uh, the um, and I don't have a great answer. And Moses says, "Okay, Levites, you know, kill three, go, go kill three thousand people." Now, there's hundreds of thousands of Israelites to suggest that perhaps this was a relatively small group of people uh, that were they were participating in this, and yet all are guilty by association. Uh, God Himself says He's going to withdraw uh, from. The people and they they are mourning. They they end up mourning this, but and Moses makes them drink a cocktail of their own sin. You know, he grinds it up uh, the calf up and and um, and makes them. He puts the powder in the water, and makes them drink. I mean, that is bizarre. Um, and yet, that is. I wonder if um, when Jesus is saying, "Let this cup pass from me." This cup of judgment, this isn't in some way in play there as well. So, um, prayer, when people say, I guess all we, you know, we've run out of options, all we can do now is pray. <laughs> prayer moves the mind of God. And we can appeal to His nature, to His faithfulness, to His covenant promises, uh, and, and we can make any appeal we, we so desire. I think Jesus modeled it best. Not my will, but yours be done. But that's not, a, um, that's not just throwing up his hands. Right? He's laid out what he wants. In that case, Jesus didn't get what he asked for. God continued down that path to the Father. In fact, that's what Jesus came for. It's complicated. It's gray. Right? So... Um, there is lots more to say. So we're actually going to talk about Moses' face shining about Josh, the transition to Joshua. We'll just put this off a week and then we'll come back to this passage next week and we'll put off the, um, the uh, judges um, after that. So, or Joshua 3-6, to six, the going into the promised land. All right, God bless you. See you in church.